We're here today to talk about Edward Elgar, the great composer of the English Renaissance in modern music, by which I mean 20th century music. musicology really between Elizabeth's time when some major largely Roman Catholic polyphonic composers like Byrd and Tallis and the first John Taverner and Davenport and others came to the fore and Henry Purcell. Purcell lived in and around the time of the Great Fire of London from the restoration of the Stuart monarchy after the interregnum of Cromwell and the Civil War until the turn of the 1700s. He died like Keats uh, of tuberculosis, so is essentially believed. Now, Purcell was a great genius of structure and order and composition, described somewhat loosely as the English Mozart. Bird and Tannis looked back to put through what for them was the modern idiom of polyphony, back to medieval plain song and chant and high Christian Catholic music. We factor forward across two centuries, basically, from 1700 to 1900, and there is not really an English composer of universal, never mind European, significance. People come and go, and there are academic composers like Parry and so on towards the end of the 19th century, with whom Elgar was initially compared. But in actual fact, apart from maybe Sullivan's Irish Symphony in 1864, there is not too much to speak of. What fills the musical landscape of our society during those 200 years is largely French and Italianate music theatre and opera, which paradoxically had begun back under the culture of the Puritans in the English Civil War, where a lot of theatre, including Shakespeare, was banned, but musical performances, which were non-liturgical and non-religious, were allowed. Therefore, women with large sort of busts and bodices and so on would perform secular pieces on stage, completely at variance with many Puritan ideas, but as long as it wasn't religious, it was okay. And that type of musical dramaturgy dominated our musical life for 200 years. And the view grew up on the continent that during the great era of largely Germanic symphonies, defined principally by Mozart and by Beethoven, we reached a position in England where there really was no music that was at all interesting or of universal import to the European civilization. Certainly, any music that could be talked about was parochial. Elgar completely redefines the nature of English music, English classical music, and high art music of a British character. He's also not a lone genius, because partly opened up by his example, there comes several generations of composers who can say in individuals like John Ireland, is heavily influenced by him, and Bax, and Bliss, who wrote a lot of ballet scores, and eventually Britton, and Tippett, despite his left-wing views, and Birtwistle, and Matthias, a Welsh composer of largely choral works, many of them put on by the BBC Third Programme, as it was. Sir Peter Maxwell Davis, at the present day, who looks to post-modernity, but also to very early, and even pre-Baroque, uh, musical stars to draw inspiration from, and then goes back up to the present day again to complete his cycle of eight symphonies, and who lives up, on, up in the Orkney Islands, is a continuation of a tradition 
that really began with Elgar. Elgar moves in English people in a way that no other composer, certainly none of those that I've just uh, mentioned, really does. He speaks emotionally and from the heart and subjectively to the Impressionism of the English. There is something slightly magical and indefinable about his musicology. Whether people are listening to the imperialist sort of performances like Land of Hope and Glory, like um, Royal Britannia, um, orchestrated by him, like Pomp and Circumstance, whether they're listening to things to, to do with Victoria's Jubilee, or whether they're going much deeper into works like the first two finished symphonies, or the third symphony, which will be finished from impressionistic notes long after his death by a contemporary, middling and rather academic composer, or whether they're listening to um, Cocaine, or whether they're listening to The Kingdom, or whether they're listening to the mysticism related to his own personal Catholic faith of the Dream of Gerontius. His music draws English people in, in a way that really words cannot define. There's an interesting story that I'd like to share with you just for a moment, which shows you the power of Elgol beyond all political and social affiliations as regards Englishness. Tony Banks is in many ways a very decadent and left-wing politician, who's just left the House of Commons saying he despises most of his constituents who happen to live in a part of East London, now called Newham. About 60% of them are black now, so I wonder what that says about Banks' particular take on all of that. But he was a very left-wing member of the GLC under Livingston in the 1980s. When Thatcher shut that local authority down for internal political reasons within the British establishment. She didn't like the way Livingston was introducing taxes in London and so on. I was under business pressure to do so. The GLC on their final afternoon played Elgar throughout the three or four hours when sort of the bailiffs were coming in to turf them out of what was then County Hall, which is now a private sector tower block. And they played the enigma variations. And you had people like Banks who in many ways has been party to political and social programs and processes that have torn most of what this country once was down over the last 30 to 40 to 50 years. And he's just one individual. But you have him in tears over the enigma variations which represents the quintessence of Englishness. And you see the power, even in the most unlikely places, that this music has when it's particularly manifest in relation to our nationality. There is something about the Worcestershire countryside, there is something about England's greenness and lushness and sweetness and harshness, there is something about the weather, there is something about the insularity, both as a source of strength, of imaginativeness, of fairy tale lights, of romantic and imaginative introspection, but also of sentimentality which is there in this man's music and which really is in no one else. People like Purcell were great composers of a European type who happened to be English, but Elgar is a great English composer who is largely self-created, because unlike Vaughan Williams and unlike Banksy Drawn or the Celtic folklore, but both of them went back to the folk traditions that pre-exist higher or classical forms of white and Indo-European or Aryan music, Elgar created out of his own person. He created for himself and in terms of his own deep emotional longing and desires. He also created in a very impressionistic way. 
You know, after a day's teaching, for example, because that's what he did to survive for most of his adult life, he would play on the piano. He would play in a sort of almost freedom of consciousness and free association way. He would note things down. Certain conjunctions of the diatonic register, certain forms of tonal composition would work. He'd play them over to the wife again and note more down. He'd go away and stick things to the backs of chairs in his study and so on and, and see that there would be an overlap between that piece over there and this bit over here. And gradually, the texture of a larger work would be built up step by step, organically, almost like pottering about in a garden, essentially, in terms of his mental musicianship. He was a very good violinist, a very good cello player when he was young. He didn't really master any other instruments, but he became a major conductor of his own and other music, because British music was beginning to burgeon then, as I've already mentioned, towards the end of his life. He also pioneered many individual virtuosi and people who could actually play many of his pieces. It's important to realise that there were several Elgars, and that in many respects he was a very private man. His Tory, indeed ultra-Tory politics, and imperial manner, and quote-unquote blimpishness, together with figures like Conan Doyle and Kipling and Ryder Haggard and so on, many of whom, in that Edwardian and Victorian era, he was deeply personally associated with, and were friends of his, can give people the wrong impression about him. There is a certain leftist distaste for Elgar, or the politics of imperialism with which he, and Victoriana, with which he can be associated. But at the end of the day, he's a radical, rather than a purely conservative, in the sense of restorationist figure. He's a man who wanted to bring forward deep, romantic sensibility and articulate it through an individual vision of genius. Now, genius is a concept itself, which is unfashionable today, as is beauty, but Elgar believed in both. But true to a lot of English and British visual art, personhood and individual character, character above all, was supremely important. Elgar was, in many people's minds, whether bohemian or otherwise, an eccentric, amongst anglers, amongst people who liked to row, amongst people who liked to cycle in the countryside around where he lived. There's a degree to which even amongst these rather more conventional and slightly staid and uh, inartistic types, he would have always stood out as a bit of an eccentric. Whereas amongst the artists, he often brought to them the manner of the Victorian drawing room and the imperialist granduncle. So he existed as a quote-unquote straight amongst the Bohemians and an alternative person amongst people of a more conventional and bourgeois register. Like all artists, he existed between worlds because... The great point of an artistic sensibility is observation and analysing life from without. Because although his music is primarily about emotional sentiment, art is not a matter of sentiment. It's not about emoting or sentimentality. Art is a hard, ultimately, rather than a soft discourse. Deep down, it's more objective than subjective. It's the objectification, which is what art is about, creating objects, out of emotion. Science is about the objects of the natural world, of that which can be ratiocinated from the puff, uh, front of the brain, whereas all artistic matters are about emotion and lie deep in the recesses of the back brain in particular. But there's a science of them, there's a logic to them, there's a knowledge of them, and how the processes which connect with people's emotion and translate it into form actually work. And music of all forms, which is in some ways why it's always the most difficult to talk about it, in my view, is the form 
that's beyond all of the others. Because its language, its semiotic, is universal for human beings within and beyond race. It's almost the one art form that can impact on all minds and on all states of consciousness, apart from the completely tone deaf and deaf from birth, there is actually nobody who cannot be moved by music. And one pauses to think here that the greatest musician in the European classical tradition is Beethoven, who was deaf for a significant proportion of his life and could hardly play properly towards the end, but the music was pure inside, and a lot of it was done by sight in terms of actual reading and close reading of the score. And there are musicians to this day who actually relate more to the eye and the text, if you like, they're textualists, rather than the ear. Although for nearly everyone, of course, who works in that area, it's a combination of the two. Now, Elgar <coughs> epitomises certain forms of Englishness which for a long time stood rejected at the heart of the continental culture. English music, even its revival through Bax, through Bliss, through Vaughan Williams, through Ireland, through Tippett, through Britain, through Britain's operas, via Elgar, even looking back to people like Sullivan and Parry and, so, and forward to modernists of sir, a certain moment, like Birtwistle and not Matthias, but certainly um, Sir Maxwell Davis. Despite all of these, and despite the recognition that continental musicology has given to them, and large books by Germanic critics like Ernst Naumann and so on have been written about English music in the 20th century, there is still this slight belittling of English musicology in continental sensibility, this sort of view that it's all Constance Lambert and a bit more, that it's too saccharine, that it's too sweet, that it lacks Germanic rigour and harshness, if you like, in these great architectural cathedrals of sound that someone like Bruckner creates, or pure concern with form, or the expression of very lurid and over-the-top and operatic emotion, that somehow it's, there's a certain quaintness to it, a certain shyness, a certain internal privacy, a certain uh, softness and sweetness. This is, at times, a continental view of English music. But this music, which is Elgar's, which is, racially speaking, a combination of Germanic and Celtic strands, musically, I think, within one particular personality, creates a feeling that English people respond to with deep sonorousness, in joy and in sadness. And there is certainly joy and power and pageantry in Elgar's music, but there's also sadness as well. Because reading the life closely and with an eye upon the text, you can really sense that there's a bit of a sign curve in Elgar's personality. And there are deep troughs, as well as there are great ecstasies. There is the fact that after a major period of creation, like the Second Symphony, he needed to rest up and couldn't do uh, very much creating for quite a long time. And after his wife died, I think in 1920, or thereabouts, there's a great falling away. And apart from occasional pieces, an unfinished opera, um, I think based on King Henry VIII, that is dead, there wasn't too much done. Elgar also realised that after the Great War, there'd been a high point of what critics would call jingoistic patriotism, with which he had become partly associated, let's be frank. And there was a great falling away of interest in his music during the 1920s, although no one, even his detractors, would say that he wasn't actually very, very significant. One piece that I would like to talk about in particular is the Dream of Gerontius.
which is based upon a personal impression of Elgar's religious ideas. His Roman Catholicism has never really been pushed that much, although no one's particularly shied away from it in relation to his own specific biography. But it was there, and in an artistic way, was reasonably central to his life. His Catholicism had very little to do, if not nothing to do, with sectarianism. But what it was, was a personal religious vision of transcendence, of the belief that you go beyond the body completely, which can lead in that theology to a disrespect for the body. Now, the Dream of Durantius is based upon a poem by Cardinal Newman, who was an important convert from the High Anglican Church to the Roman Catholic Church in England uh, in the middle of the Victorian period, indeed the High Victorian period. He led a movement out of the Clerisy at Oxford University at the time called first the Oxford Movement and then the Tractarians. Now, to many people, this is rather archival and dry and archaeological material, so to speak. But in the Victorian period, for somebody important, or for a group of people led by Newman, to convert from the Anglican dispensation, which is now largely collapsed in our culture, let's face it, who listens to Rowan Williams now, but then from, to go over from that to Rome was an earthquake. It was a decisive change. And it set people are wondering about what was happening to English Protestantism, so to say, in the 19th century. The most mystical poem of a high Gerard Manley Hopkins type that Newman wrote was the dream of Gerontius, upon which Elgar bases this particular work. And there's an interesting metaphorization of this piece in the Elgar Museum, which is a private sort of sector museum situated near Worcester. They're very sort of uh, odd about if you want to film there and all this, you've got to pay quite a lot to go in there, and so on and so forth. We went round the cottage where he was born, which he's turned into a museum. But an American contemporary sculptor, modern, but traditional in casting, has done a metaphoric vision, in stone and three-dimensionally, obviously, of the dream of Gerontius. And there's a figure, which is the soul, leaving the corpse, leaving the body after death. And none of us knows what happens, technically, when a body dies. But a certain energy, which is obviously in it, goes. Because a cadaver is just an inanimate object, whereas anything that has organic life in it is so qualitatively different to that which doesn't, that something is there that's gone. The big question, of course, is where, what energy that there was there has gone. But in this particular relief, the energy is going up out of the body. There are various sort of satanic and sort of devilish creatures, sort of creatures reminiscent of Heinrich Bosch and so on, clawing around the bottom or pedestal of the sculpture, trying to drag the spirit down into matter, into present day, into the somatic, into the bodily. And there are angels or angelic figures of some description, because it's not an explicitly Christian sculpture actually, moving the spirit upwards and outwards and towards the light. And Elgar is always concerned with, if you like, certainly in this piece, a certain lightness and a certain delicacy of touch. Strength with delicacy. Music related in some ways to the spirit of dance, although he never really explicitly wrote for the dance, the way Bliss did, with pieces like Checkmate um, later on. Now, which have been revived uh, towards the end of the 20th century by Sir Vernon Hanley and his influence at Liverpool Philharmonic, for example. Now, I see Elgar as essentially a deeply individ individuated and traditional artist who's subjective, emotional, sweet-tempered, slightly melancholic, very, very English, and concerned primarily 
with the transcendence, but there are also great moments of joy and that martial patriotism that the English have, and which is a sort of pageantry. I've always been struck by elements of English nationalism within the British context and how they differentiated from how the more Celtic parts of the British people, such as the Irish, the Scottish and the Welsh, evince their own national feeling. There is in English a slight softening or understatement of a more radical position and the need emotionally to express a radical feeling of patriotism and self-regard by using perhaps slightly softer tones and terms. And this is why, in paying comparison to very militant expressions of national feeling, English people can stand to attention to things with sort of tears in their eyes and tears streaming down their faces and with extreme emotion and sometimes very held in violence as well that relates to these type of emotional forms that touch them very, very deeply and very much at the heart it's that sort of belief that uh, you can do an extraordinary thing, but you don't really necessarily want to be praised too much for it, at least in public afterwards. It's that slight diffidence in the expression of that which otherwise would be radical, which characterises partly the depth of Elgar's music, partly the fact that it's a certain English sensibility unmasked, and there are certain cultural criticisms of the English viewed outside in, that see ourselves, see English people, as in part wearing a mask. Elgar's music is the emotional expressiveness of the English people unrepressed and without a mask, with deep sonority, relating to private and yet personal experience of a general and generic character. It is also expressive of the European civilization in high art music, but it is totally concentrated in the sensibility of these islands. You can also hear a voice, a musical voice and a musical personality coming out of this music from first to last. And when BBC Radio 3, in alliance with the proms at the Royal Albert Hall, produced the third symphony, which is made up from scraps, absolute scraps and notes, chucked about his study, basically, and pasted together by essentially an academic musicologist, immediately people realised it was him, again, living again, almost a century later certainly 70 years later, and that voice, that sensibility, that sureness of note and of pitch and of tone came through yet again. And although maybe the third symphony, the third symphony in inverted commas, has had much less impact than the first two, never mind the Enigma variations, never mind the Dream of Gerontius, never mind the personal and impressionistic motifs based upon his friends, like Jaeger and later the composer Richter, who took him up, noticed again the Germanic influence, that although understanding the difference between the English and the Germanic, nevertheless cleaved to the English voice, which was new and original, and put the music of England and later Britain in its entirety back upon the map of the European civilization 200 years after the death of Henry Purcell. Mm -hmm.